Welcome to Life Point with your host, Pastor Tom Doherty. Welcome to Life Point. I'm Pastor Tom Doherty, and today filling in for me is Pastor Gary Moore, and he is the host of Life Point Plus every Friday former associate of mine at Cloverdale Church of God. So I hope you enjoy this great day with Pastor Gary Moore. This is Gary Moore, and I want to welcome you to LifePoint. As Pastor Tom said, I'm filling in for him this week as he continues his well-earned sabbatical. Well, this week, we're going to spend some time looking at Ephesians 5. I think you'll find it interesting and challenging. So let me ask you, What difference does Jesus make in your marriage? Have you ever noticed that many Christian marriages don't look significantly different from those of unbelievers? Of course, some Christian marriages stand out as exceptions. But why are they only exceptions to the rule? Why does one marriage have obvious quality to it, while another doesn't when both marriages are between Christians? I've often pondered this and wondered how my marriage looks different from others. As I said, we're going to be spending our time this week looking at Ephesians 5, with particular emphasis on verses 21 through 33. As we begin this study, I want to read the entire fifth chapter. But before I do, let me set the stage. Now, even though this book is called the Book of Ephesians, For several reasons, which we won't go into here, it is thought that this was a circular letter addressed to all the churches of Asia. But since it is titled Ephesians, we're going to look at how the Ephesian church would have read this epistle. In the ancient world, Ephesus was a center of travel and commerce. Situated on the Aegean Sea at the mouth of the Caester River, the city was one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. Three major roads led from the seaport. One road went east towards Babylon via Laodicea, another to the north via Smyrna, and a third south to the Meander Valley. The Temple of Artemis was located northeast of the city. It was also known as the Temple of Diana. It was huge. Now there was huge, and then there's the Temple of Artemis at least double the dimensions of other Greek temples, including the Parthenon. It was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built and destroyed three different times. Each time it was rebuilt, it was done so in a grander and larger form. The size of the last rebuild was 425 feet long. Now that's nearly one and a half football fields. 220 feet wide and 60 feet high. That's a six-story building. It had 127 columns, each six and a half feet in diameter. At times, it was the capital of proconsular Asia. In the first century BC, it was the second largest city in the world with a population of more than 250,000. It had an amphitheater that originally held 25,000 people. In this cosmopolitan trading center, there were a number of religions and philosophies. The worship of Artemis was the primary worship at this time. And there were three primary ethnic groups living in Ephesus, Jews, Greeks, and Romans. 
Given that background, let me now read Ephesians 5. And as I read this, I would remind us of this statement. You can't see what you don't look for, and you can't look for what you don't believe in. We are all coming to this particular passage with our own filters of life experiences and previous teachings. None of us comes with a blank slate. We all have our own unique perspective. I would also like to reaffirm that we don't discover spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And remember that in the earliest biblical texts we have, there are no chapter and verse designations and no section headings. Well, now to Ephesians 5, reading from the NIV version. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and as of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord." Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful, then, how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, embedded in this passage are several questions that deserve our attention. For example, what is submission? What about the head and the body? What is a savior? What is love? We'll try to address each of these as we work our way through this passage. In Ephesians 5:21 through 33, Paul is specifically talking about marriage relationships. And since this is so, let's briefly look at the perspective of marriage that these Ephesian congregates had. First, the Jews. Marriage was held in high regard among the Jewish people. It was thought that everyone should be married. However, the Old Testament laws to protect women had been largely ignored or made ineffective, thus making it very easy for a man to obtain a divorce. All the wife had to do to constitute grounds for divorce was to burn his dinner, go out with her head uncovered, or speak negatively about his parents. Women could not divorce. But if a wife chose to leave her husband, she had to leave her children with him. In general, women were considered inferior to men and held in very low esteem. They were possessions on the level of animals and had no voice whatsoever in the relationship. Well, now let's look at how the Greeks viewed marriage. The Greeks thought it was necessary to marry in order to provide legitimate heirs to a man's property. But marriage was not considered particularly satisfying otherwise. Women were very young when they married, about 14 years old. The men were much older, in the neighborhood of 37 years old. And since it was the responsibility of a Greek wife to manage her husband's household affairs, it was considered prudent for a man to marry a very young girl so he could teach her the way he wished his household to be managed. Eroticism was a part of Greek life. A husband didn't need a wife for companionship, love, or sexual fulfillment. It was not considered immoral for husbands to have affairs. However, there were serious penalties for an adulterous wife. The wife's legal position to her husband was much like that of a child or slave. She actually went from the rule of her father to the rule of her husband, and if her husband died, to the rule of her son if he was old enough. Consequently, in the Greek marriage, there was little common ground between the husband and the wife. Well, our time is gone for today. Join me tomorrow as we continue to look at Ephesians 5, 21-33. God bless. 
LifePoint is a ministry of the Cloverdale Church of God. If you would like a copy of today's broadcast or would like more information about the church, please call us at 208-362-1700 or write to Cloverdale Church of God, 3755 South Cloverdale Road, Boise, Idaho, 83709. You may also visit us at our website, www.cloverdalechurch.org. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day.